Hi, I'm Bailey. And I'm Katie. Welcome to Prose Tinted Glasses. First, we have some pre-recorded info about what we're going to talk about today, which is the Grishaverse by Lee Perdugo. We pre-recorded a little segment where I explained the order of the series to Katie. During this entire segment, I pronounced it Grishaverse because I am a book reader, and that's how I said it in my head. And I am an audiobook reader, and so it was being pronounced Grisha the entire time, and my brain totally just did not connect what they were pronouncing as Grisha with the Grishaverse. I was imagining it pronounced like Grecian, as in people or things coming from Greece. And it took until probably two-thirds of the way through the, the first book for me to be like, oh, and so then I reported back to Bailey. So I will likely be switching between the two pronunciations with little to no reasoning behind them. But just keep in mind when you hear this next little segment, I did not know any better. So it will be it will be Grishaverse then. And in the future going forward, I will try to continue to pronounce it. Gre- oh, God. Oh, no. This is going terribly. Katie, take over. Grishaverse. Grishaverse. But also, fuck the police. We'll say whatever we want. Anyway, here's Bailey teaching me about the universe and what order in which to read things. So, Lee Verdugo wrote this Grisha verse, and it started out with Shadow and Bone. What you're not going to do is do what I did and read them backwards in time. Oh. Um, so, you're going to start with Shadow and Bone. The second one is Storm and Siege. And then the third one is Ruin and Rising. And this follows one set of characters in one country as they move through the challenges, the plot of the story, essentially. But that first series is what is the Grishaverse. And then there are spinoffs. Mm-hmm. So while I read them all backwards um, and didn't have any of this background information, the story still made sense and I still enjoyed them. But if you start with the Grishaverse, it will make a lot more sense when they reference things that have happened in the past. And you'll feel more um, emotionally connected to some of the characters and some of the instances. So the first thing you start with is the Shadow and Bone, Storm and Siege, Ruin and Rising. Okay. Because, yeah, because the, the only one I've actually downloaded is Six of Crows. And I, like, started it, but I, I got, like, maybe 30 minutes into the audiobook. And it was, like, a day where I was actually really busy at work. So I just, like, remembered nothing of what I had read or heard. Um, and I was like, I'll do this another time. <laughs> And then we started talking about this. So I was really confused in like that first 30 minutes of of Six of Crows. Yes. To make it worse, I actually started with King of Scars, which is the most recent to come out book that follows a character that was in Shadow and Bone, like the Grishaverse first and plays a major role in it. And this is his story after everything that happened in that universe. So I accidentally spoiled like a few things for myself by reading King of Scars first, which is why I'm saying don't read King of Scars first. Okay, I shan't. Six of Crows wasn't that bad in terms of spoilers, like sort of, but it doesn't ruin the story in any way. But it does sort of open very much so with the expectation that you know who the characters are already with a few exceptions. 
Mm-hmm. And while that works for novels that are purposefully written that way as a standalone, it is much more challenging when written <laughs> as if you have read another series already. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Six of Crows is a duology. It is Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And it's just those two books set in that. In the Grishaverse, but in a different country. And then King of Scars chronologically follows after the Six of Crows duology. Okay. So you're catching back up with a character from the first trilogy, but there's also some characters from the duology, and you're meeting them after everything that has happened in Six of Crows. So you want to read those first because that is that was where the major spoiler was, and I can't fix it or change it, but it would have been much more impactful to have read them in the correct order. Okay. Quote, unquote. I just didn't. So now I will read them in the correct order. Or at least the order suggested. Yeah, the order the order you're suggesting. I basically take everything you say as fact. If this is the order you're suggesting, it's the best order. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's the, the three books in the trilogy, and then the Six of Crows duology, and then the last one. Yes. Okay. King of Scars, which I believe is going to be a duology, but the next book is not published yet. Okay. And also, King of Scars will not be in the first season of the TV show. So that one's not even... If you want to read it, great. I wouldn't stress about reading it in terms of having knowledge of what's going to happen in the TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the TV show, from what I've been able to find in all of the previews and Libra Dugo's Twitter and stuff, is that it will sort of mash some of Six of Crows into the timeline of the original Grishaverse trilogy for the parts of it that allow you to do that, where characters don't have to be in two places at once. And so the first season will kind of cover a lot of that. Um, And then I assume if it gets renewed, they'll do like the rest of Six of Crows and and work into King of Scars. But, you know, they don't make any promises before they've signed a show to more than one season. That makes sense. Okay, so I will endeavor to get those five books read before the premiere date of the show sometime in April. Not yet specified, because why would they give us yes. spe- specific dates? Why would they do that? No, there, there's no timeline. You must just read them and hope for the best. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, next time you'll be hearing from us, uh, I will have read those. Okay, so we're back. I have now read the trilogy, the Grishaverse trilogy. So that's the first three, Shadow and Bone, Ruin and Rising, Siege and Storm. Did I get the... I got the order messed you got, up just there. You got the order messed up, but you got... It's like the right spirit. It's good. And I, I, I read them in the correct order, so it's fine. Yes, I did get live reactions during most of the, the reading process, so I, I can confirm she read them in the correct order. What is interesting is I finished reading Ruin and Rising within minutes of Katie finishing Ruin and Rising because I actually hadn't read Ruin and Rising yet. So we were able to experience it together. And uh, there were a lot of messages flying. Emotions were high. I want to say a lot more, but we haven't given our spoiler warning yet. So I can't. Yeah, so we have thoughts. So definitely stick around to hear our thoughts. But just a spoiler warning, as Bailey mentioned. Uh, We are going to be talking about everything in depth. If you haven't read the trilogy, we recommend it, especially with the TV show coming up, which we are going to cover in a 
an episode after the TV show is released. Um, this episode is going to be about the Grishaverse trilogy. Our next episode will be about the Six of Crows duology, which I have yet to read. Bailey has read them, though, so we're going to be walking a little bit of a thin spoiler line here where we are going to spoil the Grishaverse trilogy, but not Six of Crows yet. And uh, then we'll watch the TV show and do that. Anyway, you should read it, and then we're going to be spoiling things. So if you don't want spoilers, turn back now. Yes. Our first spoiler is, oh my god, are we Team Prince Nikolai? Yeah, I feel like we should back up to like one of the first reactions I sent Bailey about the book. And I want to be clear that I had almost sent this earlier, but I was like, nah, this is this is not going to end well for me if I come out as believing this. But then something else happened that made me be like, nah, fuck it. I just need to tell Bailey how I'm feeling. And that feeling was that I was team the Darkling. Katie said, I get the feeling he might be evil, but whatever, I still love him. And yeah, I was I was like, I, I know for sure that this is going to bite me in the ass, but I do not care. I could not tell her yet that someone much more perfect was coming along and that she just needed to sit tight. She's fully team Darkling. I'm like, okay, but I mean... I think what you said is like, interesting, since I read them in a different order, I have a different perspective, which was very diplomatic, but I was like, oh man, I, I really done fucked up. <laughs> yes, I tried not to spoil everything, but we did eventually get there, and turns out uh, we both are definitely Team Nikolai, which is great. Yeah, I think as soon as Sturmhan revealed himself as Nikolai, I immediately texted Bailey. I was like, Prince Nikolai! I'm like, I'm in, I'm all in. We are Team Prince Nikolai. I want him to win. Yes, and this is the point in which I was like, ah, yes, this is the moment I was waiting for you to get to so I could say what I actually wanted to say about it but that is just our feelings and has nothing to do i guess with you know an actual analysis of the book or anything we're just you know i mean it's analysis tangential because you may notice that neither of us are team mal because mal sucks yes i hate the entire framing of mal as a romantic interest i am not here for the built-in, they were friends from childhood, but oh, I just started noticing you love interest. I don't love it. Also, I think Mal is like a, can't believe I used this, but really he has angsty golden retriever energy. He like will do anything for Elena, but also like the second you slight him, he like takes his toy to the corner and glares at you until you get a treat out. So, mm. yeah, so I'm not like full anti like childhood best friends to lovers. I didn't like it in this specific instance because it was very specifically that Alina had been in love with him forever and he'd just been, you know, dating lots of girls, which good for him to get female attention. But then specifically after Alina was like taken away is when he was like, and I was surprised by how much I missed you and I just I I'm not I'm not here for it. I don't like it. And like Bailey said, he um he's childish, he sucks. He there was a, a part in the last book where he was like I can deal with you being in bad moods but like there are portions of all three books where you just stop talking to her because you're angry like shut the fuck up right I mean Storm and Siege he spends a an entire time in an underground fight ring instead of dealing with his emotions or even talking to her at all he gets drunk and he fights other Grisha I I shouldn't say other Grisha because he's not Agrisha, but like that's the point. He would rather go get drunk and fight people than actually have a discussion about his feelings. And I'm not here for it. 
Nope, not here for it. Team anti-Mal, team very much pro Prince Nikolai, who is perfect and great. And we have a lot of strong feelings about Alina and how she does not have a personality and she was very clearly just a, a reader avatar. And so I guess it makes sense that she would choose Mal because he also has a personality that either doesn't exist or sucks. But like she could have had Prince Nikolai, who insisted on his military service and then hired a drunkard to pretend to be him at university so he could continue to be a pirate to help his country. She could have had, I love it when you quote me, Prince Nikolai. And she chose the friggin' angsty golden retriever. She did. She did. Which, uh, first of all, one day I will get to tell you everything I want to tell you about hiring someone to pretend to be you at university, but that today is not that day. Okay. Maybe the next time we record will be that day. I just, we go through three books where we are basically following Alina and Mal around, and the entire time we are supposed to be convinced that they are in love and something is keeping them apart. And what's keeping them apart is that Alina in no way loves Mal. Honestly, because she doesn't have a character. Yeah. She is a reader avatar. You might love Mal, but I don't believe the character of Alina does. And that's actually one of our biggest things throughout the whole book is that all of the plot things that happen are not driven by Alina doing anything. Things happen to her. Other characters do things off screen and she reacts to them. And that's what makes the book. Mm -hmm. And not even in a in an interesting or convincing way. Like, I get that sometimes characters are pushed around by the plot, but it just makes it seem like Alina doesn't have... Not only does she not seem to have any agency, she doesn't really seem to have any desires other than getting back to Mal and, like, kind of learning her power. I don't know. I just don't believe that she wants anything that we're told that she wants. Right. I think learning her power falls to the wayside after Shadow and Bone. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, when she first gets to the little palace in Shadow and Bone, she wants to figure out her power. She is hurt by the fact that people like Zoya ignore her and belittle her because she doesn't know what she's doing with her powers. But I feel like by the time we got to Storm and Siege, that very much fell to the wayside. She w It was no longer important that she figure anything out. It was important that she get the various plot devices, essentially. Like, mm -hmm. she needed to get this, she needed to get that, and I, I just don't necessarily buy it. Yeah, they really have, uh, they really overload this plot with the uh, MacGuffins, huh? There's the stag and MacGuffin, and then there's the... The sea monster MacGuffin, and then finally there's the bird MacGuffin that turns out to be Mal. I was very much <laughs> attempting to avoid using MacGuffins here, but yes, I mean, essentially, that's what all of these are. And I'm having a um, brain moment where I cannot remember the word they use for amplifier. Amplifier, yeah. Got it, yes. Um, it might as well be MacGuffin because they're like, oh, we have to find the amplifiers. Oh, we have to find the MacGuffins. It's fine. But that's, it's jumping from one to the next, and especially when they're trying to find the Firebird, which turns out to be Mal. Giant spoiler alert, you guys already got that. Which I did call, although they were being pretty, like, it, it was not really a secret, I don't feel, because every time Mal touched her, she, like, felt her power surge. But I did call that, like, midway through book two. See, I did not at all. Oh, really? I didn't, it wasn't until, it wasn't until book three when they were... Try, they were coming up with like, oh, the Firebird must have been where you guys are from, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wait, 
wait. Yeah, it definitely took me longer to realize that it was Mal. And they they did attempt to sow a little bit of doubt into it with that scene where it was like, do you think that we only love each other because you're the amplifier? And Mal all of a sudden is like, no, that might have brought us together, but I've loved you. And I'm like, no, you haven't. In the first book, you literally were like, you didn't love her in the first book. And that was part of the plot tension was that like, she loved you and you were mildly interested in being friends with her until she got taken away by the the darkling uh yeah agreed and i don't know i just i have a lot of thoughts about mal but i've already pretty much summed all of them up i'm not a, not a fan is the summation yes um the darkling i get it he's the bad boy you were like he's gonna be evil but i kind of love him anyway and especially in the tv show I think he's going to be an extremely attractive character, and they're definitely going to play up that aspect of his character. Um, and actually, I just want to be clear, I'm still not not Team Darkling. Like, he's evil, I get it, he's, like, super evil. But, like, at the end, when he's like, call me by my name, and she, like, says Alexander, and I'm like, I'm just, I'm here for it, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not sorry. I am bad boy trash, and I will always be. Okay. That's fine. We'll agree to disagree because pretty much from the moment I finished Shadow and Bone, I was like, God, the Darkling is just, I'm not here for it because he also, in some ways, is like the magical key to everything in the plot. Like, oh, this, yeah, this happened. Oh, must be the Darkling. I don't, I don't uh, disagree with that criticism of the Darkling as a plot device. I don't think it has a lot to do with what I like about him as a character. I think he is one of the only people in the universe that really sees Alina's power. And he does want to use it for himself, but he also specifically is seeking someone out who is as powerful as he is to be a partner in all of his evil endeavors. Which, again, not not great plot-wise, but he is one of the only people that recognizes that part of Alina and appreciates it which again i don't know why you would because she is not a character so right i would be extremely interested in a prologue of the darkling i would want so much more of his character like that would be something i would love because it would lend more depth to him as a character overall in the trilogy yeah i'm down but we may never get that spoiler alert we did get it this is editing katie popping in to say that the Darkling prequel called The Demon in the Wood was released in 2015. Bailey and I have since read it. It was cute. It was just a 30-page little vignette about a time in, in the Darkling's childhood, but it doesn't really address the larger criticisms we have. So everything we say from now is still valid, except that um, we were wrong and this did already exist. Okay, jumping back into the episode. And that's that's fine. But I think that would make the story that we read stronger if we had more of why he's this way. Yeah, and I think we get a little bit of that at the very end with Bagra's tale about how she basically specifically raised him that way. And I think that's interesting background. I don't hate them putting it where it was as kind of like a reveal slash flashback, but I do wish we'd gotten more of a taste of that earlier on to kind of understand why he is the way he is yes and i felt that if we had gotten more of that it would have made bagra's sacrifice even more impactful Mm -hmm. even though it happened the way it did i still felt like it was one of the more impactful scenes of the entire series was her Mm -hmm. coming out 
and doing this. Um, and I think that could have been strengthened looking back at the series as a whole. I think we get glimpses of the fact that the Darkling is still beneath all of his bluster, a boy who loves his mom. But I do agree that it wasn't shown very powerfully and that it could have made just a a much deeper impact on that moment. Instead, we just kind of get glimpses of it through Alina's point of view. I think that the idea was to shroud it in mystery until a big reveal. And I don't think that worked as well as she wanted it to, I guess is what Mm -hmm. I'm saying. But as I said, it was still one of the more impactful moments of the the series, in part because the impactful moments are often Mal-centric, and I don't care. We we don't need to beat a dead horse. (laughs) Yeah, you guys get it. I'm sorry to all the Mal lovers out there, except I'm not sorry you have bad taste. Guys, I'm just saying, like, why would you have that when you could have Prince Nikolai? Like, I'm here for every smug, overconfident one-liner, because I think he has a great character. And keep in mind, I, Bailey, have read King of Scars. So there is some more that I know, and I'm still thoroughly I'm, I'm thoroughly on this side. I think that he is one of the most interesting characters in the series. He has a fleshed-out background that we learn. He has fleshed-out conflict with his family. And I don't think a lot of our other characters get that sort of build-up. Maybe that's why I love him. And I think he's just I think Nikolai is probably like the most characterful character in the entire trilogy because you see, you know, he's putting on that perfect prince routine and part of it's an act and part of it's what he was raised for. But you can learn about the things that he cares about that makes him put on that facade. You know, he uses it as a political tool and he is nakedly ambitious and nakedly calculating, but it doesn't stop him from also being a good person who actually cares about those around him. He truly wants things for the country that, you know, it it seems evident that other leaders do not. And I just, I think he's a great character. And I, I'm glad that we do get more of him, honestly, in, in a farther duology. And I can't wait for Katie to read it. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for it. I'm really excited to read it. Editing Katie and Bailey here to add in our code words for the Shadow and Bone Collector's Edition giveaways. Your Instagram code word is golden retriever. Your TikTok code word is bird MacGuffin. We'll tell you how to use those code words at the end of the episode. So stay tuned to hear the full rules for entering the giveaways. Now back to the episode. Another character that I feel was underutilized was Zoya. I agree. Um, I think that she was just there to be like that bitchy acerbic character while Lena like learned her powers. And I like that she sort of came back around to be, you know, not exactly a good friend to Alina, but an ally. And I think that that was not as fleshed out as I would have liked it to be. I think a lot of that growth happened off screen. Mm -hmm. And I think that that could have been better on screen because we go from in Shadow and Bone, Zoya is like, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with this new girl, this new sun summoner or whatever. And then by the end, yeah, I don't think Zoya is going to ever be a generally pleasant person, and that's fine. She is an ally, and it's very clear throughout the final hunt for the Firebird that Zoya's in this because she's fully in this, Mm -hmm. which is great. But again, I feel like we went from one to the other 
and didn't see a lot of it happening. I think that's probably one of my main complaints about the trilogy overall is that things seem to happen off screen. And that just goes back to what Bailey was saying earlier about things are happening to Alina and we don't get a sense of what else is happening in the world and the other decisions that people are making. We were talking about it earlier and we both like truly hated the first third of Ruin and Rising when they were in the underground caves and like Alina was just doing nothing. And I get and fully acknowledge that Lee Bardugo was trying to put across that Alina was hopeless and helpless and apathetic because of everything she had gone through. But it was done in such a boring way. It didn't make me feel for Alina. It didn't make me care. Like, I very nearly just put the book down. I was so frustrated. Right. We were talking about how there are a couple of pretty common rules of writing, and one of them is that if a plan is going to work, you can't tell the audience ahead of time, like in a heist movie or things like that. And then coincidences or surprises can get your characters into trouble, but not out of trouble. Basically, everything that happens to Alina is a coincidence or a surprise because she doesn't have a hand in any of it, and she doesn't take any agency or make any decisions for herself. And I I don't like that. And I think that the like plan to get her out, since she was sort of cottoning onto it as it was happening, sort of like follows the the letter of the don't tell your plans if they're going to be successful rule, but not the spirit of it. Because again, Alina was not involved in the plan. And it did rely on her doing something during the plan. So yes, she caught onto it and did the thing, but it doesn't ring true when she didn't know about it. When book two ends, you know, they she's just smashed the dark darklings. I almost called him the Dark Lord. Oh my god. Wrong book, serious. The Darklings <laughs> doing great things. And to be clear, I I am not team the Dark Lord. I'm only team the Darkling. I do not ship Voldemort with anyone. No, uh, same. So the Darkling <laughs> And Alina have this sort of small battle of wills before they have to go underground. She takes some of his power in to use it against him. And after that, she can no longer summon the light. And then they're underground. And the the story skips forward. She still has not summoned at this point until they spring this surprise rescue trap that she knows nothing about. That this semi-disparate group of friends that have all been living underground in a cave together have come up with without at any point roping Alina in. And they say it's because that way she can't be blamed if it doesn't go right or whatever. But um, knowing what we know about the apparat, I don't believe that. Anyway, he's going to do his creepy evil thing that suits him. Yeah, I don't like the apparat for more reasons than just he's not meant to be a likable character. Uh Like, he is creepy and evil, but not in a compelling way, I don't think. Like, there's, like, a Dolores Umbridge villain where, like, everything she does is frickin' terrible, but she's a compelling villain because you can see, you know, everybody knows a power-hungry Karen. You know, everybody knows a Dolores Umbridge. Um, But the Apparat is just this, like, needlessly creepy old dude who... I guess I can't really tell if he's like a true believer or if he's just trying to manipulate Alina for his own power 
but like what power is he looking for cuz during this cave sequence he's just he's clearly just manipulating her for his own uses but like what like what are those means you know what does he want and that's what i was going to say is that at no point do you ever get a true sense of what he believes and what he's after you only have his manipulation of other characters and you cannot see to what end he's going for it's never actually entirely clear to me i don't feel like if alina or the darkling won i don't you know he isn't a convincing character and i don't believe he's supposed to be a villain but he also is not an ally and i don't think that those shades of gray were well portrayed because instead i just am ambivalent about his role in the entire series and i think that doing that sort of like not on the side of good not on the side of evil gray area half ally could be really interesting i just don't think it was really interesting in this case and he was just like i just had like a visceral reaction every time he was in the book like i just i don't like him and it's not in a in a like fun interesting villainy way i just i wish he had not been in the book correct and him leading Alina around and and telling her to like go in her room and and study basically was just a very weird direction to take his character after some of the other things that he I just it didn't work for me and they spent so long down there and the escape was a miraculous magic plan that worked even though it completely surprised alina who was a key part of it and like the key part of it relied on her having the that ability that she took from the darkling which nobody else knew about right right like she had to cast the shadows as the distraction but nobody knew she could do that so she cast shadows and now she's more of a distraction but then also the entire point of shooting the blasting powder up the the chimney was so that she could get light underground or whatever to summon And that relied on her being able to summon, which she had not done since the confrontation with the Darkling. Mm -hmm. I don't buy into them planning this escape that they were sure was going to work without ever confirming from their main actor if it was going to work. Like, I think they had tried to explain that she thought she couldn't summon because she was too far from the sun. Mm -hmm. But that's not something... That has ever been touched on as part of their powers previously. Like, nobody told me before the beginning of book three that her powers relied on being close to the sun. Because she could summon at night. And also she could summon in the void, which is theoretically the absence of light that way. It's blocking out the sun. It's this big dark patch. Yeah, so I just have issues with the with the limitations on her magic that were clearly just placed there arbitrarily for plot purposes. Right. So, look, I know it sounds like we're harping a lot on some of the things in this book. I still found these series enjoyable to read. I felt like it was a fun story. I just also had issues with, and issues is maybe a strong word, I wish there were things that could have been better about this book because I think it would have been so much more enjoyable and I would have felt a lot more attached to the characters. I don't regret reading it or anything. It's still very fun. I greatly enjoyed the series, and I'm really excited for the TV show and the Six of Crows duology. Um, I think that the world is fun. I think there's a lot of really promising like fantasy building blocks. And I think that the reason I'm even interested in engaging with it critically the way we're doing right now is because I did like it, and I just see places for improvement, places where the writing was a little weaker, I would have done it differently. Yes. And there are also some things that were 
thrown in there that I think got forgotten and that we could have either left out entirely or maybe Alina, if she was a character, these would have come back up. But since she's not a character, she has a crisis about making out with her cousin because at some point she thinks she's related to the Darkling. And of course, in their little like shadow dream visits and stuff. And then that never comes up again once she realizes that Mal is the relation and not her. She's like, oh, never mind. It'll be fine. Now I can kiss Mal. She doesn't even, the moral panic about possibly having kissed her great, 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 great cousin 40 times removed or whatever. That aside, she doesn't even have like an offhanded like, what is it with me and these Moritzova boys, you know? Like, there's no acknowledgement of it after the fact. Like, she's like, oh, it was Mal the whole time. And then that thread is completely dropped. Right. So I think that, yes, that moral panic, it probably would have suited if that moral panic just never existed. Or if she revisited it in some way to be like, oh, I see the connection between these two boys that I have feelings for. Like, Mm -hmm. but instead it just, she never readdressed her feelings for the Darkling, I don't feel like. And, And that's fine. It just, I think that that's where... You know, when it's maybe not your first set of novels, you edit yourself a little bit for for things like that. Um, But that's okay, because like I said, I still enjoyed it. I don't hate it. I just had to laugh at the the moral panic. Yeah, it was funny. I did like the way her relationship with the Darkling ended, though. I thought killing him with the knife and not a power was really a great subversion of their whole struggle for the entire trilogy. And I also really liked that moment of understanding and compassion between him where he asked her to say his name alexander as he died and like begged her to not let them spit on his grave or whatever to to just cremate him so there wouldn't be a place for people to go and she saw that and gave that to him and i thought that that was really sweet and once again not not team darkling right really love the it kind of rehumanized a little bit this character who is has always been a huge piece of lore, the Darkling. And also the the Titanic struggle for their powers, their powers being matched. Her choosing to kill him without using said powers is a powerful way for her to say, like, these things don't control me like they controlled you. Because his whole journey was about the power. The power he could gain and then Mm -hmm. in joining with her, the power they could gain. So I did really love that turn of events. I loved that using Mal as the amplifier spread the power of light to all of these people. It brought in all of these people who have been believers in this for so long. They were believers in St. Helena, which is fine. But at the end of the day, they they were also believers that they could overcome the Darkling. And when they each got their little bit of light, Mm -hmm. they each played their own role in overcoming it. And that, I liked that a lot. Yeah, I really loved, like, that subversion specifically, where it wasn't about Alina gaining the power for herself. It was about her giving the power back to the powerless. Yes. So ended, that, the whole confrontation at the end, I didn't see a trick. I shouldn't say I didn't see a trick coming, because I thought for sure when they had this plan to sneak up on the Darkling as he crossed in the skiff, that something would go wrong. Mm-hmm. And that turns out to be that he had multiple skiffs and, the, and the, the students weren't there. And I liked that. But the whole way everything played out after that, just I blew through that because I was so excited to see what was happening. 
And I liked that so, so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm, I can say I'm not a huge fan of when, like, a character has a dramatic death, but then, just kidding, it's undone because they have a magical second life because they were an amplifier. Just as a general trope, I understand that there's a balance between, like, wanting a happy ending for those characters and clearly the decision was made that alina and mal were the happy ending and i get not wanting it to be like super bleak i just i'm I'm not a huge fan of the like they died but but did they die trope right and i know that that's obviously a trope that is used in harry potter as well not a big fan of it there either to be honest not a big fan of it there either it takes away from the actions that were built up throughout the rest of it so they spent all this time traveling and then they traveled back as mal and alina came to the final realization and acceptance that he would have to be sacrificed and he came to her and said do it Mm -hmm. and they did and then at the end it is undone he's given this second life Mm -hmm. and it takes away from the meaning of the do it. And so, yes, I agree there that not my favorite trope. And once again, that's something I feel like it wasn't telegraphed. Like, Moritzova's stag didn't, like, come back to life. You know, the freaking sea monster didn't have a second life. Like, why does Mal get a second life? It's unclear. I think they tried to explain it by the intention was never for, you know, the third amplifier to be the daughter and so maybe that that's the explanation there is that when it Moritzova accidentally made his daughter the amplifier instead of the firebird there was a sort of change in the magic there that gave them the additional life beyond just being the amplifier but I don't really buy that one as much as I just think that the decision to keep Mal alive was born out of the desire for this cozy ending where they run an orphanage in secret yeah and to be clear I still cried at their secret cozy life orphanage. Um, It still affected me emotionally. I just think I would have been more satisfied with a different ending with maybe not Mal as the end game because Mal sucks. Yeah, I think it was a very sweet ending and I think it does honestly actually give some characterization to Alina because she was raised in an orphanage and she's going back and trying to give orphanage a different feel because their their childhood her and mal's was very strict they didn't have things blah 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 and so now yeah and there's a big part of her quote-unquote character is having grown up without parents and how that's affected her i feel like we don't see that explored with mal as much but it definitely makes sense that they want to go back and give orphaned children the thing that they didn't have which was the the love and the compassion i absolutely want short stories of the grisha visiting for christmas with all the toys 100 percent. yes oh god please i it that would just be so great i feel like we would get to see zoya be vaguely nice she would have like all these little kids that would love her and she would have the oh my god bitchy aunt zoya would be everyone's favorite aunt that's what i'm saying like you know like i i would be so here for it i'm so here for bitchy aunt zoya and i think it's perfect for her and i would read that i would read the shit out of that mm-hmm. for sure um fan fiction authors that listen to us mm-hmm. this is this is for you I mean, it probably already exists. I'm just too afraid too afraid to search for fan fiction yet because I have not read all of the entries in the universe yet. But we'll get there. Fair. Oh, I feel like we haven't talked at all about uh, Nikolai becoming the friggin' bird monster. The 
what are they called? The Nichevoya. Okay, I just picture him as literally just a giant vulture with a human head, and I know that's not right because I know he has arms, and it's not stopping my mental picture of a giant bird with just a human head. Okay, my mental picture is like a giant humanoid, like they've got arms and legs, but it's all black and they're all a little bit elongated, and then they're big black wings, and then the head is like mostly human but with a bird beak. That's what I picture, and it is not great, and I don't love that for our perfect Prince Nikolai. I think yours is probably more accurate to the intention of the book because as I said, I think it's I think it is explicitly clear that he still has human arms to an extent. And uh I just decided that he he didn't get to have them. I know he cannot speak. I am going to struggle to walk the line that is necessary here with this. If you have read everything, you will understand where I'm coming from. I'm assuming he has like terrifying bird monster PTSD in his duology. You'll see. Oh, okay. I think it was a great punishment, actually, as sort of an attack to the quote-unquote resistance to have the Darkling turn Prince Nikolai in- into a-, a Darkling monster because he was the driving force behind a lot of the-, the resistance that they were able to put up. With his kingdom, he was able to create a lot of technology like the flying ships that they used to great extent. If they didn't have those things, they probably couldn't have defeated the Darkling. Because they didn't have the ability to move quickly, they didn't have funds, they didn't have anything. Also, it was very clear that though Alina might not romantically love him, they very much so had a relationship. And she leaned on him for guidance and to bounce ideas off of. And so in one swoop, the Darkling took away the charismatic leader of his opposition. And so that was a good blow. That's fair. Once again, it's coming back to all this magic existing but not being foreshadowed and i honestly even before um nikolai was turned into a bird monster i was sort of waiting for the reveal that all of the bird monsters had previously been humans and that all of the Volcra had previously been humans especially because there was this big deal made about how grisha can't create life even though now the Darkling had this new power of creating the Nichevoya. And I was waiting for it to be this like big horrifying reveal to the resistance. And that doesn't seem to have been the case. They seem to have just been complete fabrications from the Darkling's magic. So why are all of these just magic bird monsters, but then he can turn Nikolai into a bird monster? You raise a very good point because theoretically these bird monsters, the Nichevoya, they're made of darkness, right? Like, that's the idea. They're made of his dark magic, the shadows. But they're still very much so unable to inflict real physical results on the world. And that would have been so interesting if they had turned out to have been human at some point. I know that that happens a lot in, in fantasy where, oh, the bad guy has an army. How did he get an army? Oh, it's, you know, his defeated enemies. He sacrificed all these orphans or whatever. Right. That would have been very interesting. That's not what happened. And then also Nikolai did not get healed by Alina, which I thought would have been fascinating if she had pushed the light against the darkness, much like she did at the confrontation at the end of Storm and Siege, where she pushed back the darkness and then she would have healed Nikolai from this infliction from the darkness. But um, instead, it just kind of went away when they killed the Darkling, I guess. They spent all this time building up Alina as a foil to the Darkling and her power as a foil to his. And then I just feel like that was never once satisfactorily followed through on. We were given the taste of it when she attempted to heal him Mm -hmm. and it didn't work, which I think could have worked in the story 
if they then revisited her attempting to heal him after she came, she grew a little bit more and, and came into her powers a little bit more mm-hmm. to see her as the foil, but that's not what happened. Yeah. The other thing I think would have been a more satisfying healing of Nikolai was if as the Darkling was dying and and having this moment of connection with Alina, if he finally showed that mercy that she had been begging from him for the entire series and turned Nikolai back into a human person. But I do think that that probably would have required Alina to actually love Nikolai, and that would have probably required Alina to have been a character. So I see why that didn't happen, but I would have been much more satisfied with that as a conclusion to both Alina's relationship with the Darkling and more satisfying about her relationship with Nikolai. Right. And to be clear, I'm perfectly fine that Alina doesn't love Nikolai. I think it works very well within the story. And also, then I'm free to ship Nikolai with myself. That's fair. That's a very good point that you've just made. I think it works very well that they're not in love, but I think you're right. If he were, if the Darkling were to have a moment of mercy, it would require that there were more to that friendship. His moment of mercy, as the story falls out right now, would have had to be giving life back to Mal, which, as we discussed, they cannot create life. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't have worked because Mal had to come back. The Heartrenders had to heal him before he was all the way dead, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I agree that as the story was written, I don't have any specific problem with Alina not being in love with Nikolai. It's just, had I written the books, that's how it would have turned out. Which, by the way, Katie did do that in my DMs after she finished the the final book. She was like, if I had written this story, I would have done this. Okay, I actually have that message pulled up because I've been going through our DMs for talking points. So what I sent to Bailey is... Okay, not to go all Shriekcast rewrites, which, by the way, if you don't listen to The Shrieking Shack, you totally should. That's one of our favorite Harry Potter reread podcasts, and I listen to a lot of them. Anyway, not to go all Shriekcast rewrites, but basically strengthen the bond between Alina and Nikolai throughout the series and have her slowly realize that she loves Mal and Nikolai differently. Like Her love for Nikolai is quieter and built off of like mutual respect and common goals, and it's not the heartsick baby passion she thought love should be because she grew up loving her best friend, but it's still powerful and something she chose. And then the Darkling couldn't bring back Mal, but he could undo the bird monster spell as he died. And Mal can still come back to life, and maybe they have to deal with the repercussions of that, but they're still friends forever or whatever dumb shit. But again, all of this would require giving Alina an actual personality. So it's probably a moot point. This was um, a wonderful point that she made. And my entire response to that long message was, the book is over and I'm still not convinced that Alina loves Mal in any way more than the fact that he has just always existed. Which is accurate. And it's, I mean, it's what we've been, we've, we've said it many times in many different ways. We'll keep saying it until it gets through your head. Yes. We're right, and we should say it. That's what I have to say about the the entire relationship dynamic between them. And as you move forward through the rest of the series, obviously it is a secret that Mal and Alina are alive and running their happy orphanage. So on the bright side, when you start Six of Crows, you do not have to learn about Alina and Mal anymore. There is no more, there's no more <laughs> like puppy love. Oh, now I'm mad at you and I'm never going to speak to you again oh, I just couldn't stand to be away from you. We need, like, oh, no, I'm over it. (laughs) Good, good. Something else that we did just kind of for fun is since I listened to the audiobook and Bailey read the books, I asked her to write out some of the quote-unquote Russian 
or Russian-inspired words for me. So she wrote them out so I could see how they were spelled. And then I have previously started taking Russian lessons and, like, memorized and Duolingo solely because it really bothered me that I couldn't understand the Cyrillic alphabet. And I was like, I want to know what sounds those letters make. So I know just enough Russian to write things out in Cyrillic. So Bailey was sending me the English words, and then I was sending them back to her written in Cyrillic characters. And then I was like, hmm, I probably could translate some of these to see if they mean anything interesting. And the things we got were soldat sol is Russian for sun soldier. So those were like Alina's followers when she was a saint. Nichevoya, which is the the terrifying bird monsters, that translates to nothing, which is pretty funny. And also, since they're made out of darkness, that's totally fair. And then Otkazatsia, that was uh, like peasants, right, Bailey? Yeah, that was the one that they used to refer to like Mal and then also like the wife of Moritzova um, because they were not Grisha. Right. And that translates to trash. So that's how they viewed non-Grisha-powered people, which is hilarious in my opinion. Yes, I I enjoyed this because um, something to know about me, and I think we've talked about it, when I see a word that I do not know in a book, I just kind of skip over it. Mm-hmm. I don't attempt to pronounce it. So the earliest example I can think of with this is, there's two of them, Alagasia from the Aragon series and Hermione from Harry Potter. Like they just, I recognized the whole word and skipped it. And so even now with some of these like words like corporacali, I just didn't say them in my head. Mm-hmm. I just th- that that word is what it is. So Katie's like, can you type them out or like try and say them? And I was like, no, <laughs> I cannot. I will not be doing that. I think when you read Six of Crows and you start to learn about other places in this universe, in the, the Grishaverse, mm-hmm. I'm very interested to see to talk about the diff- the sort of things that we can pick up based out of the real world, because it's very clear here where things are based from. Yeah, I mean, I know that Six of Crows takes place in Ketterdam. I know that Ketterdam is nakedly based off of Amsterdam. Yes. I don't know how to say it yet. You're going to listen to the audiobook and tell me how to say it. Fierda? Yay. <laughs> oh, oh, Fierda. Yeah, the Fierdens. We've heard about the Fierdens. Yes, that we know about them a little bit. Like, the, you will see more of that in Six of Crows. And that's going to be like like Norway or something, right? Right. So I'm intrigued when, when um, we talk about Six of Crows, I figured we'd talk a little bit more about the things that we see with that, in addition to just these, the words from Ravka that are quote unquote Russian inspired words, and also the the culture with like the uh, tea, the samovar, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely excited. Um, so before you go into Six of Crows, is there anything you know about it that you're like excited about? Is there anything that I've let slip? Basically, all I know about it from like just being a citizen of the world and and watching too many book talks on tiktok it's like a it's like a heist it's like a book about a heist or and or heists plural which i'm fully on board with i love heist films the oceans trilogy is one of my favorites so super pumped for that and bailey you have basically let slip that you think i will love kaz brecker based pretty much solely on the fact that you don't love him because once again i am bad boy trash Actually, I think in many ways Kaz Brecker is a great character, but I do not love Kaz Brecker as like a. I, I'm not bad girl trash. I'm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, sure, bad guys are great, but like th- they're maybe not always for me. It's fair. 
more for me. Yeah, Jesper, like, cool. I'm down with that. Okay. Hell, even kind of, even kind of, you know, another character. But, you know, there is what I'm affectionately terming Kaz Brecker speculation for me as an outsider watching you read this book to, to see what you're going to think. I am very interested. But yeah, I, that's probably the best thing I've let slip is that I'm like, I'm, I'm excited to see Katie's reaction to Kaz. A lot of people love Kaz. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you've like, if you were looking at any of the tweets when they revealed the screen caps, the Netflix promo. I was not. I was pretty, pretty intentionally avoiding those. That's actually probably, I didn't see anything like overtly spoilery, but uh, I can definitely take point on that so that you don't, don't accidentally spoil. But a lot of people are very excited to see that character come to life on screen. So you will not be alone if you love Kaz, I don't think. Okay. I mean, and also, you're really only going to have to stop spoiling things for- keep from spoiling things for me for, like, two more days, because I, I know that I'm already going to fly through these books. So, yes. by by the middle of the week, we'll be able to speak freely on everything except King of Scars, and honestly, I might just throw that one in, so. Yeah, it, and King of Scars, it's much easier to keep to myself what's happening in that one, because it happens even farther down the line. So, Six of Crows is two years afterwards of uh, the events- the final events of the Grishaverse trilogy. So I think it's, I'm very excited for you to read it. I'm very excited for us to talk about Six of Crows. And I'm very, very excited to see the Netflix show come to life because despite all of the bad things that have happened to me, I am a sucker for adaptations. Yeah, uh, I, I'm there for the, for adaptations. I just want to consume more of the media I like. Bailey and I were just talking about this is a point where we sometimes diverge, but just give me just give me more of the things and I, I'm there for it. Yes, I am one of those people that when it comes to adaptations, I want it to be perfect and it never is. And on, on an intellectual level, I understand why that is. I understand why specific changes are made when you adapt something. And that does not stop me from being a little bit bitter and disappointed when the thing is not exactly as I wanted it to be. So uh, this goes for most of the adaptations in my life. Harry Potter being the glaring example. Movie 5 on Aragon, the movie that does not exist. Uh, there is no movie in Bossing Say, only for Aragon. Correct. But also talking, speaking of terrible adaptations. God, fuck that movie. Exactly. I, and I, I have a feeling when we discuss um, the Netflix Shadow and Bone series, we will have some grievances to air. But mm -hmm. in general, because we plan to record immediately after watching, expect a lot of excitement and, you know, high on adaptation life. And then uh, an edit cut where we're like, wait, we sat on this for a week and now we hate it. <laughs> yeah. But actually, this was bad. And here's why. That's pretty much going to be the ammo, I feel. <laughs> Before we head out, we have a really exciting announcement. We are so excited to be giving away two copies of the Shadow and Bone Collector's Edition. One book will be given away on Instagram and one on TikTok, and you can enter on both platforms to increase your chances of winning. The first thing you need to do for your entry to count is to follow us and like the Instagram or TikTok posted about the giveaway on April 8th. Once you've done that, the first way to enter is to tag one friend in the comments of the post. This counts as one entry. Since we know that it can be intimidating or overwhelming to have to tag people in giveaways, I know it's not my favorite. We also have a second way for you to enter, and it counts as two entries. We've included two code words somewhere in this episode. If you missed them, go back and listen again to find the code words. Then DM us the corresponding code word on Instagram or TikTok. 
You can enter both ways for a total of three entries per platform. So to sum that back up, like and follow us on Insta and TikTok, tag a friend, and or DM us the code word for up to three entries per platform. Right now, we're only able to offer this giveaway within the United States, but if you're an international fan, let us know you're interested in future giveaways and we can plan ahead next time. Entries close at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on April 20th, and we will announce the winners in our episode about the Six of Crows, as well as on Instagram and TikTok on April 22nd. Pour yourself a glass of wine. Let's start reading in between the lines. Never know what we might find. Yeah, it could be magic. Oh. Crows Tinted Glasses is hosted by Katie Phillips and me, Bailey Utrecht. Our logo is by Baby Truth Collections, and our theme song is by the amazing Anna Voss. Check her out on Spotify, Instagram, and TikTok. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and join us next week when we jump into Six of Crows. See you soon!